The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Isaiah 51. We are journeying through this book. It's been such a sweet gift for me, for my own soul, in meeting the servant Savior in Isaiah. Just tasting his good news has been refreshing to me, and I hope it's been refreshing to you. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. This is the structure of these first eight verses. You've got three calls to listen, listen, pay attention, listen, and then following those calls, after people are awakened and aroused, then there's a direct charge, a charge to consider how God can make much from little, a charge to look through global punishment to eternal salvation, and today a charge to not fear man's reproach. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 1 of Isaiah 51, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. Her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look at the earth beneath, for the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment and they will dwell in it. And those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever, my salvation to all generations. I'm going to continue to read through verse 11. Awake, awake! This now is a response of the people to the Lord. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea away for the redeemed to pass over? And the ransomed of the Lord shall return." And come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy. And sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The Word of the Lord. This is our third week. And we've looked at the top two. We're looking beginning today in verse 7. 
Listen. And I believe we're talking to people that are able to listen. Most of Isaiah's audience in his day didn't have ears to hear. Reaching all the way back to Moses, Deuteronomy 29.4, God had said, You've seen much in the Exodus, and yet I have not given you a heart to know, or eyes to see, or ears to hear, down to this day. God didn't overcome Israel's rebellion in the days of Moses, and that rebellion continued on into the days of Isaiah. But Isaiah anticipated a day when there would be people with hearts that were changed, with eyes that could see, with ears that could hear. And here in verse 7 he says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is the law. Now, those who know righteousness... Back in verse 1, we read this. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. And the pursuers of righteousness who seek the Lord in verse 1, and my people, my nation in verse 4, I think it's the same group now, of whom we're told they know righteousness and God's laws in their hearts. Not outside, but within. Now, this mention of righteousness, righteousness, this this word comes up in both masculine and feminine forms. When it's masculine, it refers to God's definition of right order in this world. His, His big, wholehearted definition that talks about right order in reality, wherein he's at the top. Insofar as an individual person aligns with God's definition of right order, that person is tagged with the feminine form, righteousness. So, tzedek is masculine, tzedakah is feminine. So, a person can be declared righteous or one's actions can be identified as righteousness. Insofar as they align with God's definition of right order, which is righteousness. These pursuers of righteousness, these who know righteousness, we're talking about the the big scope of God's definition of right order. And these people are on a track of, of longing for it. And yet, they're doing it in the right way, I've argued. These are people, in light of chapter 50, verse 10, who are fearing the Lord, who are obeying the voice of the servant Savior. These are people who, at the end of verse 10, were told, are trusting in the name of the Lord and relying on God. This is a knowledge of righteousness by faith. But it's not only a pursuit of righteousness by faith, it's a knowledge of the righteous one. Now in verse 8 in the ESV of chapter 50, we don't see it clearly. It simply says, talking about the servant Savior, the one we know of as Jesus, He who vindicates me is near. But the Hebrew simply says, He who declares me righteous is near. 
That's what vindication is. And the servant Savior is talking in chapter 50. And he says, God's looking at me and recognizing my righteousness. It's something God doesn't see when he looks out on us, except through Christ. Proper pursuit of righteousness, proper knowledge of righteousness, is only done in light of and in relation to the servant Savior who is declared righteous. Turn with me to chapter 53, verse 11. So all of 53, Pastor Jason quoted some of the text this morning. I'm eager in January beginning of February, to go through Isaiah 53. I don't know how many weeks it's going to take, but it's unbelievably beautiful. The clearest picture in the Old Testament of Christ's substitutionary atonement on our behalf. We read in verse 11, Out of the anguish of his soul, he dies, in verse 10, under the crushing hand of God. And out of the anguish of his soul, for the joy set before him, he endured. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, there it is again, the one who is vindicated, the one who is declared righteous, the righteous one, what will he do? He will make many to be accounted righteous. Those who know righteousness are those who pursue it by faith and those who know the righteous one. That's who he's talking to. I think it is. So in verse 11, yeah, by his knowledge, that is by the servant's knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, by his own knowledge, he will make many to be accounted righteous. So the way the ESV has it, it's a a little tricky, but I think that's exactly what it means. It's all one person. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will make many accounted righteous. By his own knowledge, he will do it. The people in whose heart is the law. Now as best as I can tell, everywhere in the Bible, wherever the law is associated with the heart, not just commanded, but actually there, it's talking about people who are regenerate. Now, back in Deuteronomy, right after it says, Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Right after that we read this verse. And these words, these words about the the oneness of God, there's only one king, one judge, one ultimate object of greatest value. One creator, one doer. Yahweh is one. And you're to love Him with all. These two words, these these words, hear, O Israel, there's only one God, and love Him with all, these words are supposed to be on your heart. These words that I command you shall be on your heart. But in the Old Covenant, for the majority, God commanded, but He did not enable. 
Chapter 29 says in Deuteronomy, God hasn't given you a heart to know Him. Eyes to see or ears to hear. He commanded it, Deuteronomy 10.16, Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. There's a shell around your heart. Well, if you've got a bad heart, what you don't want to hear from the doctor is, Go fix it yourself. You perform the surgery. You circumcise your heart and stop being stubborn. There's your answer. Fix it. Take the knife, open yourself up, and go for it. You've got an ugly heart, a sick heart. You do the transplant. You do the operation. It won't work. That's the state of the old covenant. And that's the state of the covenant into which Isaiah is ministering. And yet now he's talking to a people in whose heart is the law. It's not this group. This is Isaiah's audience. This is Jeremiah's audience. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron with a point of a diamond. It's engraved on the tablet of their heart. Not the law, but sin. And that's the state of every unregenerate person. Jeremiah lifts it up as a parable. So, the tablets of their heart were not the law. They were, what was written on them were sin. Well, where was the law written? If the tablets weren't in the heart, where were the tablets? Where? On stone. stone. And where were they on stone? Where were they placed? In the Ark of the Covenant. Jeremiah 3 says, The day is coming when the Ark of the Covenant will be remembered no more. The Ark of the Covenant was this box with two cherubim engraved in gold on top of it. It was the throne of God and it sat in the Holy of Holies. There was no image or idol in the most holy place where all the other nations of the world and their temples had an image. Israel didn't have an image. It had the very throne of God and His presence would dwell there. And in in the place of the image was the tablets of stone. On them were etched the very character of God. In Exodus 19, God said, if you keep the law, you will be a holy people. That suggests that there must be something about God's holiness that relates to the law. That as they live out the law, they would begin to image the character of God. But all it was was words commanding to them. They weren't able to do it. They didn't want to do it. Their hearts remained cold and distant. So there's a parable in the Old Covenant it's, it's, it's a parable in that the, the law is written on tablets of stone and put in a box where no one can read it, rather than being in the human heart wherein everyone can read it. So Jeremiah envisions a day when the Ark of the Covenant will be no more, but instead, Jeremiah 3, all of Jerusalem will be the throne of God, and in Jerusalem will be gathered nations from all over the world and Jews. A reunited people of God. Jeremiah chapter 3, 16 through 18. 
The ark was the throne of God. Now all the city will be the throne. Remember in Isaiah, the city is the bride. And the bride has offspring. And those offspring will be gathered into the city. And now the throne of God will be there. What used to be the case is that on their hearts were was sin. Sin was etched on the tablet of their heart. But Jeremiah envisioned the day when that tablet written with sin will be removed and a new heart will be put in there, engraved on it as if it were a tablet, the very law of God. That is, people will become the Ark of the Covenant. We will be the temple of the living God. His presence will rest on us. We will be part of the new Jerusalem. No longer thinking about the parable, the picture of the Ark of the Covenant, because all those who are identified with Jerusalem will be the Ark of the Covenant. That is, we will be the temple of the living God with His law written on our hearts. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. Here, sin is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Now what's anticipated is that no longer will the law be stuck in a box in a holy of holies. No, that picture will be set aside and now the real will come. And God will dwell amidst people. And Isaiah is talking to a people in whose heart is the law. That is, they've become the very temple of the living God. Earlier in the book, we've read about how the Messiah will come and the Spirit of God will rest on him as if he were a movable temple. And everywhere he went, the presence of God would go. Those who are identified with this servant Savior now have the law within them as if we're part of the movable temple. And that's how the New Testament authors read it. The church becomes the temple of the living God. And Isaiah here is talking to people in whose heart is the law. This was anticipated. Sorry, before I go here, there's a hand. The question speaks to the people or the audience. Yes. And that is, if we have a kind of a conventional sense of Old Testament, the faithfulness of the Old Testament God to the Jews, and a sense that we get to the New Testament that that relationship with that God and the faithfulness of that God will be available now to more people, to Gentiles, in addition to Jews. So I find myself wondering, is Isaiah here speaking so much about a view of the expansion of that covenant? Or is he speaking So, so the, the question is, who's he, who is Isaiah ex- actually talking to right now? When he refers to those who pursue righteousness in verse 1, when he refers to my people, my nation, is it possible that he has in mind not the nation broadly, most of whom were rebels, but a specific nation within the nation? Prospectively, but retrospectively. 
So, is it possible? I mean, he, he's talking to a people who are, it seems, it doesn't seem that he'd be talking to Abraham. Because Abraham is already alive. Uh, Christ says, already there in heaven. After death, immediately transferred there. This is, this is calling people who are alive. Um, and yet, Hebrews chapter 12 would suggest that Abraham would be part of the broader group. Let me just read this section from Hebrews 12 to us. The question on the table is, who exactly is Isaiah talking to? Here's Isaiah chapter 12. You, sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. You have come, O church that I'm referring to, you new covenant people of God, you have come to Mount Zion. We have? Yes, we have. You've come to Mount Zion, not an earthly Jerusalem. Just like Jesus didn't go through a temple made with human hands. He went through a temple made without hands in the heavenly place, which is the ultimate Jerusalem. You, church, have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's where you've already come. Two innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, that is, to those who are identified with, I believe, Christ the firstborn, they're enrolled in heaven, they've got new birth certificates, and you've come to God, to the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Now that assembly there is the word for church. And it's the You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And that assembly would appear to be all those from all time. Gathered together to the throne, to the new Jerusalem. That's where Abraham and Isaac are right now. That's where Ruth and Rahab are right now. In that great assembly. And indeed, we're part of that assembly. According to Ephesians chapter 3, we have already risen with Christ. Already, if we are in Him. We are seated at the right hand of God right now, and Jesus is already reigning. And yet we're still here. Exiles, yet our citizenship is elsewhere. And in a very real sense, we're already part of that world. Isaiah's talking to a group that is part of that world. for whom it can be said the the temple, that heavenly Jerusalem, is already being realized through them on this planet. People are able to meet God when they meet us. They're able to see His presence, see Him seated on the throne of our lives by the choices we're making, by the responses, the reactions that we have, by the integrity that we carry, all imperfectly, imperfect representations of our God, imperfect reflectors, and yet real ones. And this is, I believe, already working its way out. For the law to be within us means that we're being treated as the Ark of the Covenant, that we are indeed being treated as the very temple of the living God. 
so that people can actually read his word. It's not stuck in a box. It's actually be able to read because the character of God is now living itself out from us. Here's how Paul talked about it in 2 Corinthians 3. He said, God's made us to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. That's, that's what's happened. The law has been written in us, and the glory of God is beginning to work its way out from us. This question, he raised the, the, used the term the elect, and I've always thought of that in terms of New Testament, but it seems to me the elect are those, those heroes of the faith in the Old Testament as well, but for, the, but for God choosing them, they would be no different from any other sinner, it seems to me. Is that a fair concept? Is the elect, I mean, because we're talking about Isaiah's audience, and among them, isn't there a sense that there's an elect uh, uh, within the Jewish community? I mean, David, I would say David was among the elect. For certain. Romans 9, Paul uses that exact language of election, and he counts himself a part of this group. And then he even refers to the those who are predestined for judgment rather than predestined for mercy. He can have wrath on those whom he chooses. He can have mercy on those whom he chooses. And he reaches all the way back into the Old Testament. He starts with Isaac, and then he goes to Jacob and Esau. So yes, I believe election is a concept that isn't just, um, just for the New Testament, but reaches all the way back into the Old Testament. So the question is, did those in the Old Testament receive the exact same benefits? And I would say no. Not the same benefits. A few verses out of Hebrews 11. Number 1, verse 10, Abraham was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder was God. All the patriarchs, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having greeted them from afar. Last verse of chapter 11, God has provided something better for us that apart from us, all those saints in the Old Testament should not be perfect, be made perfect. What it suggests to me is that they died in hope and in faith. We die in hope and faith, but they're looking ahead to something that they did not taste at all, whereas we are looking back. 1 Peter chapter 1, the salvation that we now enjoy, the prophets of old searched and inquired carefully 
in order to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was foretelling the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but us. This grace of salvation is... They they were saved. They enjoyed salvation by grace through faith. Abraham's faith was in the offspring promise... Just like ours is. He was trusting God to do for him what he couldn't do on his own, ultimately through the offspring. That's that's what ours is, but we look backwards and not just forwards. And so we're enjoying something that they didn't in that we have seen Jesus. He's given us a pattern for living that they never had, but even more than that, he's given us power that they didn't ever have. A type of power that's grown in light of past grace, that is past pardon, and future grace, that is future promises. And that, that framework of past pardon was something that Abraham and Ruth could only look forward to. That David could only look forward to. And they did. Paul in Romans 4 tells us David and Abraham and Sarah We're looking forward to the righteousness that is by faith. And they enjoyed it. They received it. But it was only in light of what Christ would do, not in in light of what Christ had already done. So the better covenant, there was a need for that betterness that has superseded what was in the old. They had a building with the presence of God in it. And it couldn't go global. Now we have a people with the presence of God in us and the temple can go global. It's something that Abraham didn't have, that that Moses didn't have. Um, And then to have a sea of believers from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, that too is something that they didn't have. The remnant was so small in the Old Testament. And now we're able to surround each other and encourage one another to persevere. fulfillment. When the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. I think this text is talking about Gentile Christians. He continues, if a man who's uncircumcised, that is a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you Jews who have the written code and circumcision, but you break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. I think this whole chapter is talking about Gentiles who never had the law, who all of a sudden are honoring God with lives of love and condemning all the Jews who actually had the law and haven't been honoring God with their lives. And the only way the Gentiles are like this, the only way we're any different in this room, is because Christ has come. Because Christ has done something in us. He's first of all, accounted us righteous in Him so that now 
We seek to battle sin, but the only sins that we can conquer are sins that have already been pardoned. We need a God who's 100% for us with all the authority in heaven and on earth working on our behalf so that we can overcome lust, so that we can overcome bitterness, so that we can overcome laziness. We need that past pardon to know that God is 100% for us and it actually gives us power to be the people that He's calling us to be. Listen, O people, in whose heart is the law. So you interpret that that way. You're calling for... You know how how faith and works are generally set as the antithesis? Yes. Right. So the question is, usually faith and works are set as an antithesis. The, he doesn't use the word work like he does in chapter 4. Here he uses the word keep. And I think he, his, his choice is intentional, if only to try to distinguish the two. This isn't a working for the sake of justification. This is a doing that's flowing out of an inner transformation that's happened by the Spirit in the heart. So he's not downplaying justification by faith. In fact, in chapter 3, he's going to go out of his way to say, everyone, Gentile and Jew alike, need Jesus. And that's why these Gentiles are different. It's only because of Jesus. So we come to that text in Romans chapter 9, verse 30 and 31. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But the Jews who pursued a law unto righteousness did not attain it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. It's the same group. The Gentiles have attained this righteousness. And then Paul says in Romans 6.21 that those who've been set free from sin, the fruit you get is progressive sanctification and its end eternal life. Romans 6.17, Thanks be to God you obeyed the form of teaching to which you were committed. So it's, a, it's all a thanks be to God, and it's all about progressive sanctification, which is very different than the ground of our justification, which is in Christ alone. This, this keeping of the law, I don't believe is at all about justification. It's about identifying the fruits of justification, which is progressive sanctification. We see anticipation of this inside, this law in the heart in the Psalms, three times that I find it. All of them, I I think, they're all pointing to the Messiah. The mouth of the righteous one utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. That, That sounds just like what Isaiah is anticipating the servant Savior will be like. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Hebrews quotes that text and applies it to Christ. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And it's because this was true of Christ that in Him we're given fresh power that it can be true of us. What's the difference between the law of Moses written in the book and the law written on the heart? Well, there certainly 
is a difference between the law written on the heart and the law of Moses. The law written on the heart is a law, is, is, um, not directly the law of Moses, but the law as it's been fulfilled through Christ. When Jesus comes, that law, Jesus is like a lens, and that law gets put through the lens of Christ, and there's refraction and enhancement and some changes. All the law gets put through Him, and the law that we enjoy on our heart is a law only in light of the coming of Christ. But I say that, and then I'll jump back and I'll say, it's also a comparable law to the law that apparently Abraham kept in Genesis 26.5 when it says, Abraham, 430 years before Moses came, Abraham kept all my statutes and my judgments and my rules and my laws. Which ones? Is that all written on his heart? That law, I believe, was written on his heart. And, and that's how we're supposed to understand it, that by faith, he had fruit. And that fruit was producing not stipulation-keeping per se, but a life that was characterized by love for God and a trust in God and grounded in what God had done in his past. And, and that's what it's supposed to be for us. Moses is not ever, should not ever be the Christian's direct authority for our lives, but Moses can benefit us indirectly through Christ. So when Isaiah writes here to these people or to this audience, he speaks of law written on the heart. Yeah. The people on the other side of the lens. Right. To whom is he speaking? Um, if you look up at verse 4, at verse 4 of chapter 51, Give attention to me, my people. Give ear to me, my nation. For a law will go out from me, and I will set my justice to the peoples. And back in 42, verse 4, speaking of the servant Savior, he has his own law, and the coastlands wait for it. So, that's a, that's a great question. What law exactly is on the heart, and how does it relate to... I mean, Moses' law is the law that would have been governing Isaiah's audience in his day. And which law is on the heart? Well, we have to say the law of Moses, at least in the ten words, was etched on the tablets and still in the Ark of the Covenant. But somehow, there's a group, is it the Old Covenant or a New Covenant group, that has this law changed in, inside of them that's in there and beginning to work its way out. Um, and just knowing that Isaiah says, that, that God tells Isaiah, write it down in a book, all, of, all that I'm giving you, for a future generation, it'll serve as a witness. And in that day, after I've punished my people, in that future day, all of a sudden the deaf will hear. And they'll read my words in a book. And that's referring, I believe, to us. We, we get incorporated into that new covenant work through the servant Savior. And that leads me to think that he's probably first and that his, his primary audience, when Paul says things like the Old Testament was written for our instruction, 
that he's, he's looking at texts like this and saying, this, is not, this wasn't talking to the old covenant group, it was talking to all of us in this room. That Isaiah's word becomes new covenant scripture. And it, it gives us a picture, and it gives us it does give us clarity through Jesus of what how deep, how wide, how high love is. If all the law is about love, which I could argue that it is, then all the commandments simply tell us how to do it. They told the people how to love in all different kinds of contexts. And yet even that was just an example. 613 commandments isn't enough to handle all situations in life. And so they would have to say, well, what did Moses say that love looked like in this setting? And then they'd need to apply it in a new setting. But as a whole, what we read in the Old Testament is that the people that are working Moses' judgments are people in whose heart was not the law. And they were anti-God and, and against Him. And all of a sudden, I mean, part of the way that we... Our, our spirit testifies that we are children of God, is that we have a disposition that, that is able to read the Word and it, and it all of a sudden speaks to us. It resonates with something inside and we find our disposition wanting to honor the Lord. Even if it's the kind of prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. We have a disposition that's been reoriented toward our God so that even when we stumble, we stumble toward the cross and not away from it. And we're, we're increasingly wanting to become disciples who make disciples, teaching them not just what Jesus commanded, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. There was a hand back here somewhere. All right, Brother John? Just a comment. It seems like we as believers, as Christians, ought to be rejoicing in the use of the word, the law, in our hearts because it's still the law is still a concept that things are the way God declares them, and it's not just whatever's in our heart that is right, that is God, that is whatever. I mean, there, there, there's still a law. There's still the reality of how God declares it is how it is, you know, kind of thing, uh, so that we're not just... Um, uh, to say something about 
an authority under ourselves, that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah. Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, he speaks directly of the law of Christ. I'm not under the law of Moses, even though I become all things to all men in order that I might win some. But I am under the law of Christ. There is a law of Christ, and it's related to his teaching. Pastor John wrote an entire book based on on, um, Matthew 28 when it says, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. That's what discipleship is. That's half of discipleship, along with, ma- with baptizing. Teaching them to obey all that I commanded. And so Pastor John's question was, well, what did Jesus command? So he wrote this whole book, what, it, what Jesus Demands of the World. And he went through all the Gospels, and he began to catalog everything that Jesus called for. And then he put it into groups, and each group became a chapter. Well, one of those chapters is, Take Heed of Moses but only in light of my fulfillment. Because none of Moses reaches us directly. We're not under that covenant. But all of Moses still matters to us, but only through Jesus. And so with every single law, we we sift it through, knowing that it, it gave clarity to one people at one time of what love looked like. And then we take it through Jesus and we say, does the coming of Jesus impact this law in any way? What based on what we know, well, things like bacon, don't eat bacon. Pigs are unclean. They are trash eaters, like the devil in the garden, associated with dust. Don't eat hawks, because they kill, like the devil in the garden who sought to kill. And then Jesus comes and He overcomes the serpent and with that overcomes everything that's unclean. So all of a sudden we eat bacon because it's victory food. Amen. <laughs> I've never tried hawk, but maybe. So, that Jesus actually changes things. There's something in the law that actually gets, gets annulled. But other things are maintained. And yet, even in that maintaining, as it goes through the lens, right through the center, without getting bent in any way, there's still a focusing because don't commit adultery. Maintain the purity of marriage in your neighbor's right to his own wife. Maintain that. Even as it comes through Jesus, we see this perfect example through the Gospels of a manly man who cared for women in remarkable ways who affirmed the dignity of male and female alike, and who maintained the complementary roles of men and women. All of a sudden, we see, as, as we come through the lens of Christ, this beautiful example of what purity looks like. And then, through Jesus, we gain power, both through past pardon and future promise that None of the Old Testament people had. Not even Abraham, not even Moses. A level of power because now Jesus has risen from the dead and He has been declared to be the Son of God in power through His resurrection. Final question, then I'm going to move on. Okay, so, the law, the Old Covenant, any covenant, is it's formed around blessings and curses. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, right. It's not just that they broke the law, they were, they were treasonous against the Correct. And there's no hope. So the idea of working for your salvation as, as Israel is pretty bleak, right? Correct. So, yeah, very bleak. So in Christ, you have a new set of blessings and curses. Isn't that right? Yes. And so I, my, my previous question about, about the works thing, isn't the works trying to obey the old covenant and trying to look at the old covenant that's been fulfilled outside of Christ? Isn't that what the works are? The language, yeah, the language of works, as Paul attacks it, is attempting as sinners to use the law in order to gain right standing with God in order to gain blessing or that declaration of righteousness when it's impossible. Whereas the proper way to approach the law is to recognize that Jesus fulfilled it all on our behalf. He kept it perfectly. And now that His perfect righteousness becomes ours, we have an entirely different basis upon which to approach God. Our right standing is contingent fully on his obedience and not due to ours in any way. And so we're all of a sudden freed and empowered to pursue God for his glory and in the strength he supplies, but not and ever, never to establish our right standing with him, but because we already have right standing with him. Now we have an opportunity to display his worth to our neighbors, to our children. at a level um, higher than even the remnant in the Old Testament were able to pursue it, even when they pursued it by faith. I know you said that was the last question, but this might segue back to Isaiah. I'm wondering if in Isaiah 51, 4 and 7, if you could build a case for saying already Isaiah's audience included Gentiles. The statement in chapter 19 is an in-that-day statement. It's a future-oriented, looking through, I believe, um, the, the curse to the day of global restoration in the servant Savior. It's in that day that Egypt will be called my people. Regarding the my population, um, that is more 
I, I've seen, sorry, with respect to my people, I've seen it, it, it appears to me that Isaiah is maintaining a singular people with respect to Jew and peoples with respect to Gentiles. The my population, I would need to look at that further. I didn't pursue that, and that would be, it's very often that he'll, he'll put the two together, my people and then the peoples, the population. So maybe that population, even in um, what verse was that? Yeah, verse four. When he says that, um, what's translated as my nation in the ESV, my population, I wonder, just standing up here, maybe that would, the second half would refer to the nations, and he's talking about this joint reality. I. I'm cautious to see in Isaiah's day um, a single, a view of a, of a, these restoration promises as a reality apart from Christ. Um, that, that he anticipates, so, so that people like Uriah the Hittite and going back one step, Ruth the Moabite, and back one more step, Rahab the Canaanite, they're all viewed as Israelites. So that Abraham, even in Isaiah's day, is still the father of one nation, not a father of a multitude of nations. So he's, that, that shift to his being a father of a multitude of nations, I think is all contingent on the arrival of the, the promised offspring. Um, so the... It could influence whether or not, in light of Brother Rick's question, we're to read this only as a New Covenant oracle, you know, to the New Covenant people, or does it have relationship to the Old Covenant people? Well, all we got through there was the arouse, listen up, let's, uh, let's, let's just look at the main commandment here um, in verse 7. There's a charge to not fear. It's, if you know righteousness, if you, if you have this grasp of right order wherein God is supreme and His glory is, is the highest, you need not fear anything. Because your eyes have been opened to see the beauty and the bigness of our God who is indeed over all things so that as hard as it gets, as as Difficult as life comes, you are able to rest knowing that God is still on the throne and no purpose of His can be thwarted. Here's what it says. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. For the moth will eat them up like a garment, and the worm will eat them like wool, but my righteousness will be forever, and my salvation to all generations. Don't fear. Now this, this call is in the masculine plural, so it's talking to a bigger group. And the only other time, I mean, he's got lots of instances in this book where he says, fear not. For I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. But that's in the singular. He's, he's feminine singular. He's, he's talking to Jerusalem as a city. Only one other time do we find him say, fear not, in the plural. And it's here. 
Isaiah 35. And this text is just awesome. I had you guys, I encouraged you to go home and read it a month ago. This, this text is just, the whole chapter, the ten verses are, just capture Isaiah's gospel. And right in the heart of it, he says, Be strong, fear not, behold your God will come with vengeance. Now for him to say that, means he's talking to a people who've been deeply hurt by other people. And it looks as though injustice is abounding. And he says, vengeance is mine. Fear not, I'll come with vengeance with the recompense of God. He will come and save. So don't fear. Think about right order, wherein I am at the top. And I am working to bring about right order. That's how Paul talks about the Gospel. I'm not ashamed of the Gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. In it, that is in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In the Gospel of Jesus, God's passion for right order is disclosed wherein He is at the top. And those who align with that right order, who receive the good news, need not fear anything. Because He will come and He will save. Why don't I need to fear? For the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. I think that's a picture of hell. So, look at verse 4. What's God going to do? I will set my justice for a light. God's going to work justice. Here, His declaration is, My righteousness will be forever. My salvation to all generations. But what contrasts with that lasting righteousness is that the enemies of God will get eaten up. Here's Isaiah. It's the only other place where it mentions worm in the book. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Here's Jesus citing that text. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. Our text says, the moth will eat them up like a garment, their worm will eat them like wool. And it will never end. And yet, while that torment will continue... God's righteousness and His salvation is a forever reality. A forever righteousness. To live in a way at all times 
where we're not falling short of God's glory, but where we recognize what right order is and we're forever living in alignment with His definition of right order. And we know that when we're aligned with that right order, when we find ourselves close to this God, there is fullness of joy for the longest amount of time. In my presence is full joy. At my right hand are pleasures forevermore. Back in 51, we read in verse 50, chapter 50, verse 9, rather, we read of the Messiah these words Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? No one. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. Those who stand against the Christ are those who will stand against us. The servant is not above his master. And yet we can be certain that God knows injustice. So much of Isaiah is focused on injustice. The overcoming, the hope we have of God overcoming injustice. This is Paul's words as we close. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? There's our word, elect, right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Zero. No one. It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? No one can condemn us anymore. He has disarmed all rulers and authorities at the cross, putting them to open shame. In the fullness of time, He sent His Son in order that He might prove Himself just and the justifier of all who believe. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. He would be unjust to not forgive us. Hear that. Because of what Jesus has done, we stand before Him blameless in His eyes, holy, righteous. He counts us as His sons and His daughters, and He will work for us. He's not a God who gives a scorpion when we ask for bread. No, who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, He was raised. That is, He was vindicated. He was declared to be right. And now He's at the right hand of God and He is interceding for you. And He's interceding for you. And He's interceding for you. And He never stops. That's the good news. That's Isaiah's good news. And the salvation that we are resting in is ours and will never be taken away. Jesus, thank You that You've allowed us to see hope in this text today. Thank You for insight and help. We praise You that Your righteousness is full and Your salvation will never end. Work more salvation around us and through us in the lives who are still far off. In Jesus we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.